You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Something's been in the news, unfortunately, for the last year, and that's the uh, corona pandemic. But here we're entering into a new phase, a hopeful phase, um, in many places, and certainly in Israel, where we are moving very quickly, far more quickly than anywhere else in the world on the vaccination process. And that has uh, been a happy note. And uh, among other things, we've seen the rates recently go down of infection, etc. So that is good news for those of us who are living in Israel. However, um, as any success story and Jewish success story, there tend to be critics, um, some fair, some unfair, um, and certainly a tinge of anti-Semitism that creeps through a lot of these critiques. Um, specifically, um, the critiques that uh, I'm referring to are ethical critiques. Um, being a rabbi and being someone interested in ethics in general, I take these critiques very seriously, uh, if only they were as serious as I'm taking them. Uh, we're going to get to the real crux of the issue uh, to give them more credit than perhaps is due, but perhaps we ourselves need to understand the real issues that are behind the false issues. The false issues, uh, I was reading Al Jazeera, um, the Qatar-based news syndicate about the, uh, I forgot what they called it, but the seamy side of the Israeli vaccine success story, how Israel was able to secure vaccines more effectively than other nations. Um, and and I, quite frankly, all I saw was the headlines. So I can't tell you what they said. Uh, but certainly, we all know that the Israeli government uh, exerted a lot of efforts in terms of getting the amount of vaccines that we needed. And that certainly, uh, as people in the United States know, is surprising, given that the supply in the United States is, is, uh, is short. Uh, around the world, there's not enough supply. And uh, Israel was successful in its efforts to get the vaccine in the necessary quantities here first. Now, as far as I know, everything that was done was on the up and up. However, there was certainly a lot of pressure um, in, in, in any way that could be exerted to get the two large vaccine producers to, uh, to uh, cooperate with uh, Israel and send the the amount that was needed. In fact, the, the, I don't want to get to the whole story, but uh, Israel's bought vaccine from a number of other suppliers as well um, as making its own vaccine. But be that as it may, so that's one area. Is it fair for Israel to step at the front of the line? Um, the, other, the other issue, which is really a strange uh, type of issue, is the critique we're getting that Israel is getting for not sharing its vaccines with the Palestinian Authority, um, and that being a sign of some sort of uh, racist ethic. Um, 
incredibly, I just read recently from a new congressman, um, some of you have heard of, named Jamal Bowman uh, in New York. And he says that, um, in a tweet, he says that uh, our Prime Minister Netanyahu must ensure that both Israelis and Palestinians have access to the COVID vaccine. Um, why that is the case that Israel is responsible for uh, Palestinians outside of our domain and the Palestinian Authority is something he doesn't uh, address as far as I know. But what he does say, which is even stranger, is that this cruelty is another reminder of why the occupation must end. Now, um, I don't know how intelligent this person is. Um, it seems from these comments that uh, there's something lacking here. But to just point out the obvious, um, if the occupation were ended, if the uh, territories under the Palestinian Authority were to be given full independence, um, which is what he supports, and I'm not against that per se. Um, but if that would be the case, then obviously Israel would have absolutely no role and certainly no obligation whatsoever to share with our neighbors any more than uh, the United States has an obligation to share with Mexico. Um, I'm not sure that the status quo is so much different, um, that, uh, that there's any more obligation that exists now. Traditionally, the health systems uh, in the PA have run separately from Israel, and the whole point is they want independence, and uh, presumably there is a downside to independence as well. But what is the serious issue? What's the real issue over here? The issue is the question of ethics of scarcity. What happens when there's not enough goods to go around to keep people healthy, to keep people uh, having a proper diet and in the direst of situations to keep two people alive. We know the famous story of Rabbi Akiva um, who, and, and the jug of water. We all know the story um, where there's only enough uh, water for one person to live, middle of the desert. And the ethic that uh, it's actually a, a machlok, it's a disagreement in, in Jewish literature. But we follow the position of Rabbi Kiva, who says that chayecha kodmim, that the person who has the water uh, has the right to consume all of the water, um, because otherwise both of them will die. And chayecha kodmim, that one has a loyalty to whoever is closest to oneself, and no one is closest to oneself than oneself. Um, so that is the nexus that's of, of, of the of the situation in its most extreme form. Um, from that idea in Judaism, we have uh, similar ideas of that the poor people of your city take priority and before the poor people of your city, your own family takes priority. Again, concentric circles going back to the South that there is an, a greater obligation towards those people that are closest to you. Now, that does not mean that there's no obligation towards those outside of that circle. But 
uh, Judaism makes very clear what is true in most, certainly most traditional, traditional ethical systems is that one is not only allowed to, but expected to um, favoritize those people that are closest to one, not only because that's the emotive, the emotional uh, response that uh, is elicited inside, inside of us, but also because uh, we have a great responsibility towards them. Um, Rabbi Sachs, uh, Jonathan Sachs, who passed away recently, had a very interesting article on this issue. It was actually an article in, in uh, one of his first books, I think actually his first book, uh, Tradition and Non-Traditional Age, um, where the article is about Jewish-Christian dialogue, but he really moves into uh, an interesting direction about ethics of in-group versus out-group. And he says the following, it's an interesting line, he says that if we're not the type of people who will rescue our own, are we the kind of people who will ultimately rescue anyone? Right? That, that inner sense of connection to the other, to the close other, is what allows us to universalize that feeling to the farther other. That's what Rabbi Sachs says in, in that book. Uh, now, what does that have to do with the Parsha? It's true, we've got a big etc., but what does that have to do with the Parsha? So before I get to the Parsha, I want to tell you that um, something I've discussed a great deal in my book uh, on Shemot, on, on the book of Exodus, Redeeming Relevance in the book of Exodus. And uh, you can certainly purchase that on Amazon, but you can also even see it online at Sepharia if you prefer. Um, so one of the chapters is about exile, which I discuss at great length, the fact that the Jewish people spends more time in exile than it does at home, which is, um, I think, unparalleled in the history of any other nation, as far as I know. Um, and my understanding is that this is on purpose. This is on purpose because it creates specifically a concern for other communities besides our own. That The Jew, by being in exile so much, it becomes a more universal person than anyone else. And so many of the great universalists of the last two centuries were not accidentally Jewish, um, sometimes to our own detriment. But be that as it may, mention one of these people in this week's Devar Torah. You can read about her, Rosa Luxemburg, and what she had to say. Um, but uh, we're not going to speak about her here. Rather than speaking about Rosa Luxemburg, I want to speak about the Gemara and Tanit. Uh, Gemara and Tanit, the, on, on page Yudchet, that's 18a, um, a very interesting story about the Jews during the time of the Roman Empire, and they were being persecuted, and they were given a advice by a prominent noblewoman, a Roman noblewoman, to... Uh, to protest their treatment. Uh, so they did, and, and it, it appears that, the you know, when you protest, you have to have signs and slogans. Um, and it appears that she didn't help them with the slogan, but rather the slogan came uh, on their own efforts. And this is the slogan they had when they protested in the streets at night. They said, 
לא אחים אנחנו, לא בני אב אחד אנחנו, לא בני אם אחת אנחנו. מה נשתננו מכל אומות ולשון שאתם גוזרים עלינו גזירות רעות ובתולים ובתלום. Sorry, that's, 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 that's slogan, Uh, don't forget they're speaking to pagans who don't believe in one God. Uh, but presumably the, the tradition of, of a uh, one man, one woman, like Adam and Eve, was something that was more universal. But in fact, uh, being in that role of being dependent on others has led the Jew to see what's common between him and everybody else. And that situation, as I said, has been... a situation that the Jew has, the Jewish people have known for many, many centuries in all sorts of different contexts, which I would argue is in order to give us that universalistic approach and love for all mankind. Um, incidentally, I, I mentioned here in the Gemara that the Jews who protest refer back to Adam and Eve, the first man, the first woman. We all have one mother, one father, aren't we all brothers? But uh, for thousands of years before everybody else uh, came to monotheism, the fact of having one God is perhaps even more profound. Uh, have we not all one father uh, can be understood also. Have we not all one father in heaven that we have one creator, which may not have been recognized or appreciated by the pagans, but have been, has been appreciated by the Jews throughout In fact, when you look at some of the greatest uh, tzaddikim, some of the great, greatest righteous people, it's precisely that, precisely that consciousness of all being created by one God that leads them to concern for mankind as a whole. Okay, uh, we still have to speak about the Parsha. The Parsha, the, what's interesting about the Parsha, and there's much more to talk about, but I don't want to lengthen this episode too long, um, What I want to talk about is the uh, very extreme way in which the Jews leave Egypt. That is to say that there is no turning back. There's no sense of maybe we can build bridges afterwards. After all, um, the Jews have connections to Egypt, all sorts of connections, cultural and otherwise. Interesting, just as an aside, that uh, during the Spanish Inquisition, I mean, late in, uh, past the 1400s, uh, the Moranos, the uh, Conversos, actually, um, which are the same people, uh, Jews who um, were pretending to be Christians in Spain to avoid being persecuted by the Inquisition, uh, when they escaped Spain, um, who was interested in killing them when they were in Spain, were connected when they were in uh, primarily Holland, but England and other countries as uh, councils and, and trade representatives for Spain because they had that connection, because they had a cultural connection to Spain. So um, on one foot, the notion of completely severing ties is not an obvious one, and it's a rather extreme one. Uh, you can look at my written Vartorah 
as to what I do with that. But I, again, on one foot, uh, I see it as a corrective to our tendency, the Jewish tendency, to be too universal. We need to be universal. That's what God wants from the Jewish people in particular. And that's why we're in exile so long. But but it, we can get carried away with it. And we can forget our own. And we forget our own. We forget our mission. That ultimately we need to be a people with a distinct character. And that can only be uh, established. That can only happen if we maintain ourselves as a distinct and separate identity. And that goes back to the beginning of the podcast. That separate identity creates a community that has responsibility to itself before it has responsibility to others. Um, That's it. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 